Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from How the Sex Trafficking Panic Leads to QAnon Conspiracy Theorists by Brooke Magnatti. It was first broadcast live on the 15th of October 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Okay, great. Um, So I'm going to be talking, uh, as Sarah explained, about QAnon and the implosion of the sex trafficking panic that's been going on in the US, UK and worldwide for really the last 10 to 15 years. Um, If I could have the next slide, please. So on December 4th of 2016, um, in the United States, a man drove several hundred miles to turn up at a pizza place in Washington, D.C. He was wielding an AR-15. He obviously threatened people inside of the pizza place. And he had been inspired by a hashtag that was prevalent on Twitter at the time called Pizzagate. This came from uh, accounts that had claimed to be involved with child sex trafficking investigations. Uh, These accounts, which were later found to be fraudulent and uh, eventually removed from Twitter, claimed that high-ranking Democrats such as Hillary Clinton were running a sex trafficking ring in the uh, tunnels underneath a popular family pizza place in D.C. If I could have the next slide, please. Where this really started, where Pizzagate started, was when John Podesta's emails were hacked in spring of 2016. And in the run-up to the last presidential election, WikiLeaks started publishing those emails in October of 2016. Also, Anthony Weiner's emails uh, were published. People who were going through the uh, info dump of the emails started making claims that the emails contained coded child sexual abuse references. For example, cheese pizza was actually supposedly code for child pornography. Um, And that this group, which involved the U.S. government at the highest levels, was involved in cannibalism and beheadings of children. There were deep fake videos produced, and I use deep fake advisedly here because really I've seen the videos and they're not very good, claiming to show Hillary Clinton removing the skin from a child's face and then wearing it uh, as a mask, not unlike Hannibal Lecter might do. Uh, As we know, obviously, Donald Trump won the presidency in November of 2016, And rather than disappearing, this hashtag then goes viral. People start getting really involved in adding to all of the theories, um, analyzing the backgrounds of photographs where Clinton or Obama might have been standing, claiming that John Podesta is buying paintings of actual child pornography that he had commissioned. And this kind of rises in a crescendo leading up to the attack on Comet Pizza. If I could have the next slide, please. Now, the whole uh, field of trafficking panics is something that I've been writing about for years. Uh, It has a history. It's something that comes up over and again, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well. 
So if we look back into um, starting with the Victorians and slightly earlier, we have newspapers publishing stories alleging uh, white slavery, where white women are being kidnapped uh, by men from North Africa and sold into sexual slavery. Um, in the U.S., though, this really starts to take off as the West is settled and as territories become states. Prior to a lot of places like Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, and California becoming states, uh, they were territories um, that were settled uh, by European and American men moving over from the East. And uh, a lot of sex workers took that opportunity to go and establish brothels. Because these places were not yet states, um, they kind of followed outlaw laws. But as they started to become states and the government became more invested in, uh, in settling them with families, morality um, movements really took off. In Britain, there was a very parallel uh, kind of movement uh, with W.T. Steed, who was a newspaper man. He published a series of stories called The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon in 1885. And this was alleging that uh, white girls were being kidnapped off of the streets of London, sold to foreign businessmen. And to prove that this was the case, he supposedly bought a child himself. He was actually trying to get uh, the laws around the age of consent changed in Britain, which he did successfully. He was also the first person to be prosecuted under those laws uh, for the kidnap of the child he had purchased. A lot of this dies down through the 20th century, um, but it explodes again in the early 2000s. As some of you will remember in Britain, uh, in the later Blair years, there was a real panic around the sexualization of children. And there were a lot of studies commissioned by the government, uh, basically asking the question, why are so many girls wearing Playboy t-shirts, as was the fashion at the time? The blame game kind of evolved. Uh, Eastern European migration was expanded in Europe during this time. Various economic crises emerged so that people in Western Europe started to see um, more visible evidence of sex workers and naturally uh, went on to assume that those sex workers were not there by choice. Uh, if you want a more expanded background on it, there's a really good publication, um, which I've provided the links to elsewhere, but basically it was written by Angela Hill. And it's called This Modern Slavery, Sex Trafficking and Moral Panic in the United Kingdom. Uh, this was part of her uh, doctoral uh, thesis at uh, University of California, Berkeley, I believe. It was published in 2011. And really, from that vantage point, it takes uh, a very pointed view looking back at the way that stories uh, in the news kind of exacerbated all of these uh, largely untrue beliefs about who was doing sex work, how they were entering it, what their motivations were, and so on. Around that same time in the U.S., we also have these trafficking myths about large sporting events, um, in particular the Super Bowl. 
And this is kind of taking over where the uh, yearly appearance of Super Bowl spousal abuse stories leave off. It's really tapping into, in the United States, post-9-11 xenophobia and uh, fear of migration. So at the same time as you have Eastern European expansion going on in Europe, causing xenophobia and fear in the UK, in the US you have the post-9-11 phenomena. By the 2010s, what Laura Augustine has termed the rescue industry around sex trafficking is very widespread, and it's considered a feminist movement. So what am I talking about when I talk about the rescue industry? Basically, it's that in a very short period of time, governments have made available a lot of grant money for groups that are specifically looking at uh, sex trafficking. So all of a sudden, researchers who had previously been engaged in maybe looking at effects of sexualization or effects of pornography are seeing that uh, education around sex trafficking is where the big money is. And uh, so, for example, there had been a group called Eves for Women in London. They were suddenly getting about £5 million a year from the UK government. Um, and what they were providing for that um, was the appearance of rescue without really doing the rescues. So instead of, say, doing outreach to sex workers or setting up shelters or even lobbying for the decriminalization of women who might have been sex trafficked, they were taking the money and going to conferences and going to police forces and basically raising awareness of the signs of sex trafficking, trafficking, which supposedly involved things like having tattoos of men's names. So very rapidly, you have a phenomenon where something has gone from a fairly rare and little discussed type of trafficking to something that everybody is talking about, that everybody supposedly knows the signs and how to spot. You've got posters going up uh, in airports and, and people coming out saying, oh, well, I, I heard about or I knew a friend that this happened to. And suddenly it's a thing that is happening everywhere. If I could go forward one slide, please. Um, so in 2012, I published a book in the UK called The Sex Myth, and in the US it's called Sex, Lies, and Statistics, that was debunking a lot of the junk statistics that were getting pushed by these groups that emerged. And um, obviously, I'm coming at this from uh, a fairly self-interested background. I did work as a sex worker, um, but also I worked as a statistician and an epidemiologist, and just looking at the numbers that were being published, that were being taken seriously by the government, I could see immediately that a lot of it was wrong. Uh, almost all of it, uh, to start with, is based on estimates of who might be at risk of trafficking. So you might get a paper that says um, 100,000 children a year in North America are at risk of trafficking. And somehow along the way, this gets changed into a claim that 100,000 children a year are being trafficked. These things get perpetuated over and over again, and they're very seldom corrected. What we do know about trafficking is that sex trafficking, both of children and adults, 
is uh, a very small percentage of trafficking worldwide. Labor trafficking is actually a, a far larger proportion of who is trafficked. However, when it comes to uh, what gets the money, what gets the attention, what people are told to pay attention to, uh, that's almost exclusively sex trafficking. The country in the world with the highest rate of all ages sex trafficking is Cambodia. And in Cambodia, um, they actually have fairly good statistics, in part because certainly when it comes to sex work, it is pretty much a police state. And they report that under 2% of the sex workers working in that country are trafficked, which I find very interesting because they would actually have um, a very big reason to inflate the number, to try to get those numbers up, to try to attract the money the NGOs to come in. Another thing that's happened is over time, we had a shifting definition of trafficking. So originally, when you look at things like uh, the Palermo Protocol definitions that were used by the UN of what trafficking means, it means to cross regional, state, or national borders. But now when people use the word trafficking, they could be talking about something that's actually happening in somebody's home. They still use the word trafficking because it attracts those grants, because it attracts that money and that attention. They also redefined consent. So you saw a lot of people claiming that no transactional uh, sex involves consent, that whether you consent to being a sex worker or not is immaterial because once money is involved, then consent goes out the window. And uh, this serves to make the numbers higher. It inflates the numbers. These numbers actually don't just go up a little. They go up a lot. So, for example, uh, a famous one in the UK was Dennis McShane, who claimed that 25,000 trafficked women were in the UK uh, every year. So a new 25,000 every single year. And where that number actually came from was a Regan and Kelly paper that was estimating there were 71 trafficked sex workers in the UK. Uh, the Salvation Army took that number. And in something that they published, they said, well, we're just going to assume that that was an undercount um, that they only found 5% of the trafficked people. So actually the real number is 1,420. Uh, from there, after about a year or so, they started rounding the number up to 4,000. It's not entirely clear why. And Dennis McShane actually referred back to that document when he was claiming it was 25,000. So in a few steps and over the course of a couple of years, we have a uh, an all right researched number that says 71, going to 25,000. And because this is someone who's in government, he can just say it and enters the Hansard. Anybody can quote it. It is taken as fact, whether or not it's actually factual. Something that I want to bring up, of course, because it is going to come up, is do you believe child sex trafficking doesn't happen? Um, and I would just like to state categorically, it happens. Um, but the uncomfortable truth of child sexual abuse is that it is mainly within families and family groups. Most of the people who are abused sexually as children are abused either by family members or people close to their families. And that is a much harder issue to discuss. It is uh, a much more difficult thing to get money to study. It is a much more difficult thing to go to police forces and talk about the signs because 
how easy is it to hide those kinds of signs within families? And then just uh, because it always amused me, when I talk about things like how the definitions got shifted, it actually turns out that I am an Eastern European trafficked child. Now, why am I making that claim? Well, it's because some of the governmental position papers claimed that anybody who has an Italian name, as I have, uh, must really be Eastern European because Italian names were used, they claimed, to um, cover for Eastern Europeans. And because I migrated to the UK, although I did not migrate for the purposes of sex. I actually migrated because I was a student and later a scientist. Um, but because I ended up in sex work, um, they claimed that I was trafficked, obviously a situation of trafficking myself. And because uh, the first time that I had sex, I was under the age of 18. That means I was abused as a child. I was actually 16 years old, which is the uh, age of consent in the UK, although not in the US where I'm from. So if somebody had been interviewing me with some kind of agenda on their mind, looking to bolster their numbers, I would be counted as an Eastern European trafficked child, which clearly is ridiculous. Can I have the next slide, please? But why is child sex trafficking uh, such a popular cause? Well, let's admit it, the optics are great. First, we're starting with the loaded argument of who doesn't want to save the children. It's one of those questions like, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, and, and it's one of those questions that kind of followed me after writing The Sex Myth in 2012 of, well, why are you arguing uh, in favor of trafficking? And it's like, I'm not. I'm actually arguing in favor of better knowledge and better statistics um, so that the people that we're supposedly trying to save can actually go and be saved. But nobody wants to hear that. It's seen that if you are offering any criticism whatsoever, you must be on the side of crime. Uh, a lot of the sex trafficking campaigns uh, appropriate slavery comparisons. So in spite of the fact that at least in the United States, the uh, prison expansion that happens post Jim Crow era is much more directly related to slavery, the term modern slavery that gets applied to sex trafficking rarely, if ever, discusses prison reform. The visuals that come with these campaigns make coded references to xenophobic and racist fears without explicitly stating them. So for people who are xenophobic and are racist, they can seize on this imagery and use it to justify uh, their actions. And for people who are maybe a little bit less comfortable acknowledging their internal xenophobia and racism, it never comes out and states it as such. There's plausible deniability there. Also, when you look at a lot of the research that's been carried out into sex trafficking, it exclusively discusses women uh, who engage in transactional sex with men. It erases women who aren't cis, and it erases people who aren't women from the story of transactional sex. This is part of a problem when we get to the point in sex work where we're talking about harm reduction. Because if you are erasing certain populations from the discussion altogether, if you're talking about things like wanting to do outreach, 
you're looking for completely the wrong groups. If you're wanting to do things like needle exchanges, uh, condom programs and things like that, again, you're going to be missing quite a lot of people who do engage in transactional sex simply because you are not defining them as sex workers or trafficked women. It's appealing because it gives a simple explanation with simplistic answers, which is much more palatable than messy and complex human reality. The reasons that people get into sex work are enormously varied. They go from me trying to pay my rent in London while I was looking for a job after my PhD um, to somebody wanting to buy drugs that night, to somebody wanting to feed their children, to somebody wanting to move to a better country. And it ties into um, a lot of the problems that we get to when we discuss migration in general, which again, referen referencing back to Laura Augustine's work, she's done excellent work on uh, in her book, which she calls Sex at the Margins. Um, why is sex work so appealing to and associated with migration? So I'm just gonna take a sip of tea here. It's morning where I am, so I can't really join if any of you are are engaging in the pub part of skeptics in the pub. It's still skeptics in the morning for me. So while a lot of the people who were uh, initially involved with the groups that were pushing the sex trafficking uh, myths were on the more radfem side of feminism, as this expanded, it became much more palatable to the mainstream. And you have people like Hillary Clinton for example, supporting anti-trafficking uh, laws and groups. In the longer term, uh, a lot of these numbers were used to pass quite punitive laws against sex workers, including consensual sex workers. And these laws have unintended consequences, as is almost always the case. The effects of the legislation will always overreach the initial stated objectives, and it gives new ways for law enforcement to control the population. So if you've got someone that you've arrested and you can't get them on one thing, well, maybe you can get them on sex trafficking. If I could have the next slide, please. So here's a couple of examples of the optics that I'm talking about. Uh, probably almost every article that you've ever seen that talks about sex workers has been illustrated with a photo very similar to the one on the left of a woman in a tight dress leaning into a car. And that associates in people's minds the view of sex work as being streetwalking. And even though certainly in the UK, streetwalkers are actually less than 2% of the number of sex workers in Britain, this is still the image that everybody comes away with, that it's desperate women on the streets looking for drug money and nothing else, that maybe there's a pimp standing on the corner, um, but it's almost always illustrated this way. And the picture on the right shows a very typical kind of photo that we would see with uh, sex trafficking awareness campaigns. So you have the pale skinned female child with the darker man's hand going in her mouth. And there's so many layers of wrongness here. As I've discussed, not only that human trafficking isn't exclusively or even predominantly sex trafficking, that sex trafficking is not exclusively or predominantly involving children, um, but also the racist undertones of this. But this is what I'm talking about with plausible deniability. It does not say large black men are stealing your white child, but that's what the image is selling. Can I have the next slide, please? So where are we currently? Um, well, 
as I've described, these sex trafficking claims, although ludicrous, they are broadly accepted without challenge for the reasons that I described. That to even point out um, that the numbers have been fiddled or that um, they're being repeated without really being examined opens you up to accusations of supporting child sex abuse. It's a really popular apolitical win for people who want to be seen to be doing good. The, the, the absolutely uh, bleeding heart, bleeding heart politicians, Hollywood stars, you know, they want to be seen to be doing good with their money. And, and what could possibly be more unassailable than this? And as I touched on, it's been used to justify policy against consensual adult sex work. So the raids on Backpage in the U.S., the Sestin Foster laws in the U.S., in terms of what kind of evidence lawmakers were presented with in order to support these laws, it all focused on trafficking, trafficking, trafficking. But when we look at who is actually investigated, who is actually arrested, who actually goes to prison, it's adult female sex workers, by and large. Now, as time has gone, gone on and uh, as more sex workers started to have a voice online, they started to call for what they call decriminalization. And what decriminalization is talking about is uh, removing penalties against the people doing sex work. Now, um, some feminist groups, and this is one that started with the rad fans, but eventually moved to the mainstream, um, appropriated that word decriminalization, and they started to apply it to their own preferred uh, model of criminalization, the Swedish model, ending up in a situation where you've got someone such as the current Democratic vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, saying she supports decriminalization. And when you drill down on that and ask her about it, she actually means the Swedish model. She actually wants to put more people in prison. I just want to take an aside um, and mention here for countries such as Sweden and Ireland, where these kind of laws have been brought into play, the women are never decriminalized. It's just used as a reason to put more people in prison. And indeed, in Sweden, you have... Uh, I believe they call it Operation Homeless, where they try to um, affect everybody in the sex worker's life um, so that if she lives with a relative, that relative can be arrested for trafficking. The net result of these kind of laws has been an increase in criminalization. Uh, and it's also made it more dangerous for sex workers if, um, you know, if they feel that there's a, a bad date out there. Um, attacking sex workers? Can they go to the police and say, hey, I'm a sex worker and I think there's somebody out there attacking us? No, they absolutely can't. There already was very little trust between uh, sex workers and law enforcement, and these kind of laws have absolutely shattered it. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, when I was still living in the UK, I was asked to go before the Home Affairs Committee because they um, had a... Uh, and an exercise where they were looking at whether they should change to these kind of laws in Britain. And uh, it's online. Uh, Paris Lees and I both went to talk about our experiences as uh, former sex workers. One thing that I found when talking to MPs is they weight fiction more heavily than experience. So I could be standing there in front of them as somebody 
who has actually participated in sex work and saying, well, this is what I know because these were my experiences. And I have talked to a lot of other people in sex work and this is their experience. And I have looked at the research and even conducted some research. And these are the numbers. And they'll say something to me like, oh, yeah, but series two of The Wire had this really great story. It's, it's actually got to the point where you're arguing against fiction. When I stopped writing the Belle de Jour books and uh, started writing crime novels, that was something I ran up against over and over and over again. And it's absolutely vile in the crime writing community. How many books start with a dead hooker? It's, it's like if there is a prostitute, she must die somewhere in the book. People think that's the reality, and um, really it obscures where the true dangers lie. Um, but also it heavily objectifies sex workers to the point where it is permissible to kill us. It makes it okay. It is reinforcing this message that is given out by society over and over again, that is reinforced by law enforcement, that is reinforced by the government, that it's okay if we die. This is very specifically cited by the Green River Killer as the reason why he started on sex workers. He knew nobody would care. He knew nobody would miss us. And when you talk to people about sex work and the realities and what it is sex workers are actually asking for in terms of rights, what it is they actually need, when people come back at you with a piece of fiction, it actually breaks my heart. I'm sure you've all heard of um, the Bechdel rule in, in, uh, in movies. Um, from Dykes to Watch Out For, where wouldn't it be great if there were movies where a woman talks to another woman about something that doesn't involve a man? Also, they have to be named characters. Well, for my books, I instituted the Mignanti rule. And the Mignanti rule is simple. It is, is there a sex worker who doesn't die? That's it. That's all I'm asking for. She doesn't have to talk to another sex worker. She doesn't even have to have a name. Just, does she not die? Okay, anyway... <laughs> um, got off on a bit of a tangent there. Uh, the other thing that's happened is that fraudulent actors are hired to be the face of human trafficking campaigns. So we have a lot of people fronting campaigns uh, claiming to have been trafficked, and it turns out later on that they weren't. If I could have the next slide, please. So in the upper left here, we have uh, Long Pross being hugged by Hillary Clinton. This is Hillary showing uh, her bona fides on the on the sex trafficking question. Uh, Long Pross was supposedly uh, trafficked for sex as a child and had her right eye gouged out um, by her pimp, which you can see um, that she's missing an eye in this photo. It was actually found out later that she had never been trafficked and she, in fact, had eye cancer. Uh, we have Chung Kim on the upper right and her supposed story was adapted for a very emotive film that went around with film festivals all over the U.S. trying to raise awareness of the trafficking issue. It's turned out she fabricated quite a lot of that. Uh, Somali mom posing with Susan Sarandon. She's she's kind of the, um, the queen of lying about having been trafficked. She's a, uh, a middle class, um, wealthy family, but she claimed to have been sex trafficked in spite of a great deal of evidence showing that she wasn't. 
And then finally, we have Rachel Moran from Ireland, um, who was certainly the uh, victim of child sexual abuse. However, she claimed to have been a streetwalker in Dublin by the age of 15. And quite a lot of people who actually were streetwalkers in Dublin at the time that she claimed to have been working can affirm that she was never there. And it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter how many times you debunk things, um, because if you attack the facts, you are somehow co-writing or endorsing child sexual abuse. Can I have the next slide, please? Now, the money doesn't just come from governmental agencies. Uh, there's quite a lot of research that's underpinning things before the government gets involved, before they start giving the grants. So if you look back at the history of who's producing the papers um, and, and who is spreading the message around in the early 2000s, there's a lot of conferences going on that have been backed by U.S.-based religious conservatives, fundamentalists and stuff. And the, uh, the interesting thing and, and the reason why I'm giving this talk is because, especially in the UK, you've had a lot of radical feminists coming out, uh, producing research that's claiming these uh, enormous rates of sex trafficking in Britain, uh, people like Julie Bindle and such like. But when you look back at the history of where are they getting their money from, where are they getting the numbers, they are working for people like, and sorry, I've got a little list here, um, fundamentalist and evangelical U.S. groups that may not mean anything to you, but they should. Focus on the family, the Christian Defense Coalition, Them Before Us, which uh, is a charity that endorses gay parents staying closeted for the sake of their children. Human Life International, the Center for Bioethics and Culture. And then two that really stood out to me, the Heritage Foundation and the Family Research Council. Now, these are groups that have been designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center as hate groups. Um, they'll be known to people of my age who are raised in the United States as the architects of Reagan and the first President Bush's um, domestic policies. These are extraordinarily right-wing um, groups who really want to turn the clock back on quite a lot of uh, human rights. But mainstream feminist writers and organizations have joined hand with these groups in position papers and in policy strategizing. And this isn't hidden. Their names are proudly on it. Why? Well, because of their shared interests. They want to criminalize pornography. They want to criminalize sex workers. And they feel, why not? They've got the cash and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But underneath it all, and as people like myself have been pointing out for a very long time, fundamentalists and evangelicals in the states have deeper policy goals that go beyond just the criminalization of pornography or the criminalization of sex workers. They want to reverse legal rights for lesbian, gays, bisexuals, transsexuals, and everybody on the spectrum. They want to eliminate access to birth control and abortion. You wouldn't think that these are things that mainstream feminists want to be seen to be joining their hands with, but they are over and again. And their money comes not only from setting up NGOs that are getting governmental grants, but also from the explosion in megachurch income and attendance in the last 30 years. So when I say fundamentalists and evangelicals in the U.S., and you have in your mind 
1980s Jim and Tammy Faye Baker with their hokey little television channel, you know, or people in a revival tent, uh, you know, shaking a basket and, and coins going around um, at the old time revival. It really isn't like that anymore. It's very sophisticated in attracting uh, grant funding, in attracting donations uh, from the faithful and so on. This is a thing that really surprised me because uh, I moved to Britain in the very late 90s, in 1999. Um, so prior to 9-11 and stuff like that. And then I moved back at the end of 2016 um, for other reasons. And the change, um, the change is remarkable. When you're driving down a street in pretty much anywhere in the U.S. and you see these mega churches, it's the sort of thing that you might in the past have associated with a particular flavor of the, the Bible Belt, but it's actually everywhere. It's north, east, south, and west. And as we've seen with the uh, support behind Donald Trump, um, it's a force to be reckoned with. Could I have the next slide, please? So... From Pizzagate to QAnon, um, going back to the original discussion of Pizzagate, on the left we've got their little conspiracy chart showing, uh, connecting Comet Ping Pong and pizza to Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and child sex trafficking and Tony Podesta and eating faces and all of this stuff. And that was a reasonably successful thing. Well, um, after that, we have... QAnon. And QAnon has kind of taken the uh, central tenet of Pizzagate, which is this belief that there is a shadowy cabal of elites that are kidnapping, raping children and eating their faces, and somehow tying in every single conspiracy theory you have ever heard of. And the reach has been enormous. It is far more popular than Pizzagate ever was. So on the right, we've got the QAnon map kind of showing how they fit all of these things together. If I could have the next slide, please. It is the grand unified theory of conspiracies. Um, as you all probably know, so I'm only going to touch on very briefly, it emerged on 4chan in 2017. Um, it claims to be authored by a Department of Energy Q clearance or highest clearance individual. Um, there's been some really good research trying to figure out who actually is the Q in QAnon. Uh, the Q people think it could be Donald Trump. Um, the reality is the identity can't be verified. We do know that the person who's posting his Q has changed a couple of times. Uh, they publish these cryptic predictions or Q drops that can fit almost any interpretation. So, you know, they'll say things like, look for the blue hat. Are women in danger? Touching the side of the nose. 12, 15, 32, it also contains extremist dog whistles making references to white rabbits and things like that, which for people who follow uh, the ways that hate groups communicate with each other is a neo-Nazi dog whistle. They make claims that uh, Trump has somehow set himself apart from the international elite, that he is trying to bring the whole thing down. Also that JFK Jr. is still alive and that he is going to be replacing Mike Pence as Trump's running mate any day now, I'm sure. 
so as it's grown to encompass all of existing conspiracy theories, it has also swallowed up all of the existing conspiracy theorists, David Icke, Roseanne Barr, and I cannot tell you what an absolute mindfuck it is to be sitting having a cup of tea at a friend's house in rural western United States where I live now, talking to a lady my mother's age who lives in an RV and she says, oh, are you British? And I say, no, but I lived there for a long time. Uh, I'm married to a British man. And she says, oh, is he a fan of David Icke? And you think to yourself, how did these worlds come together? All of a sudden, we're in a conversation about lizard people and Prince Philip. It's absolutely bizarre. Um, they believe that COVID-19 is a hoax to put masks on children so that children can't seek help when they're being trafficked, apparently. Can I have the next slide, please? Because I, I love this slide. So um, on the left, we have a photograph of Donald Trump in the 1990s with JFK Jr. when he was still alive before he tragically uh, died in a private jet accident with his wife, Carolyn Bissett Kennedy. And on the right, in, in the, um, I don't know what you'd call that, a trilby, a fedora, someone can let me know on that, is the man that they believe is actually JFK Jr. still alive in disguise and about to be the vice president of the United States. I don't know. I think it kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> Can I have the next slide, please? So social media obviously has played a role in, in how we got to QAnon. Um, I think it was last month when the social dilemma was uh, gained popularity. It's a uh, documentary uh, talking about social media. It was on Netflix. And I think it was interesting for a lot of people because it was putting into words a lot of stuff that they had felt to be true. That really social media can be good for a lot of things. It can also be very dangerous. Um, we have low effort of entry, so anybody can be on it. Uh, it's not like the bad old days when I started blogging where I had to write all the code myself. Got Twitter and Facebook, which I've put here that it encourages botnets. Let's just say that various social media platforms really don't discourage these things, and they're very bad at keeping up. We've got self-training algorithms that lead users into echo chamber material. Uh, YouTube is particularly bad for this. Uh, YouTube is where QAnon's picked up a lot of people. Also Facebook. Um, but YouTube is interesting because even if you go to look at a video to see how ridiculous it is, we get autoplay features that are leading us into more and more and more extreme material. And for generations that were raised, if you can see it, you can believe it. YouTube is really one of the strongest propaganda machines out there. Social media platforms have been really slow to self-regulate. You know, you've got Twitter saying that from October 20th, um, they're going to get rid of certain kinds of accounts. It's like, well, people are already voting right now in the United States. I mean, early voting uh, started where I live on the 7th. You know, people are already out there using the information that they're getting from all of these sources in order to inform their decisions. It's it's really, you know, shutting the barn door long after the horse has bolted. Uh, governments have been reluctant to impose regulations. Uh, that's kind of unsurprising, uh, kind of post-Reagan in the United States. It's all about deregulation. That's the, that's the buzzword, and this is how we end up with 24-hour 
cable news networks, which are really kind of the predecessor to the propagandizing power of social media. And then that sex trafficking angle, it's drawn in new demographics. As I discussed earlier, it's seen as an easy win. The demographics it's pulling in are often not online savvy. They're the ladies my mother's age who live in RVs and travel the Western United States having coffee with hippies. You know, so for a lot of people uh, my age, um, I'm 45, by the way, who came to the Internet as adults, we came with a fair amount of skepticism. Um, but then there are older adults who were the very same people telling us, don't believe everything you read online, and yet here they are believing everything they read online. Can I have the next slide, please? So here's an example of, of the kind of things you can expect to see on social media. On the left, got an image from Instagram uh, of somebody claiming that traffickers are using um, very thin zip ties to try to get you trafficked. <laughs> claiming basically that if they put these on your car, you can be so distracted by the existence of a, a zip tie that you can be kidnapped as an actual adult and never be seen by your people again. And people love this stuff. They share the hell out of it. Another thing that got shared a lot was um, the Wayfair theory of trafficking. Um, Wayfair, I guess you all have it in the UK. <laughs> it's... Um, sells furniture. It's a lot like Amazon. So you sometimes get runaway pricing algorithms that will randomly price something at way more than it actually is worth. And you had people claiming that what was happening here is Wayfair was openly selling cupboards that contained a trafficked child and that the name of the product line on the website was in fact the name of the child contained inside of the cupboard. Now, of course, these can seem laughable and extreme. Um, they fooled a lot of people, but they don't fool all the people. And then you get things like the next slide, please. Cuties on Netflix. And again, we are straight back to the child sexualization panic. So this is a French art film um, about preteen girls doing sexy dancing. And somehow this has morphed into accusations that Netflix is distributing child pornography. In spite of the fact that every five to 10 years, we have art house flicks featuring sexy girls. Um, you know, I think about 10 years ago, it was a film called 13. Um, people are up in arms over this. They're sharing clips and they're saying, this proves that it's all depraved and that the elites are trying to normalize uh, child sexual abuse. To be honest, films like this appear with such regularity and produce such predictable backlashes that I'm surprised anyone even raises an eyebrow anymore because it seems like a very obvious way for someone who's a first-time director to establish their art house cred, but what do I know? Can the next slide, please? And oh my God, Q loves Trump. It does not matter how many times you debunk things. It doesn't matter if you point out that he was sleeping with Stormy Daniels when Melania had his youngest child. They don't care. He is their second coming. He is their imperfect vessel. If anything, they love him more because he's imperfect. It's a belief that borders on the religious. 
anything, any conflicting evidence just gets hand waved away with references to foundational faith texts, such as the Bible, such as the Q jobs. Logic is just not in this equation anymore. What he does have is an ability to, per, to put forward the preferred policies and people that are favored by fundamentalists, by evangelicals. Um, and so for the people who are not your kind of base level uh, Q-bots, but kind of higher up in government, they put up with him and all of his scandals because he will just do what they want. And this is a quote. It's, you know, I hesitate to rely on fiction, but I thought it just summarized it so well. It's from True Detective Series 1. And uh, transference of fear and self-loathing to an authoritarian vessel. It's catharsis. He absorbs their dread with his narrative. Because of this, he is effective in proportion to the amount of certainty he can project. Now, he's not talking about, that's Matthew McConaughey's character, by the way. He's not talking about Trump in that quote. He's talking about uh, a faith healer at, at a revival meeting. But it's basically the same thing. Next slide, please. And so we've ended up with a situation where there are a lot of people who are voting right now who believe that Oprah Winfrey, Hillary Clinton, and Tom Hanks are part of a global elite that rapes children and eats their faces. Next slide. But that this man, Donald Trump, here photographed with Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, John Casablancas is somehow not also part of that elite that is trafficking children and eating their faces. Next slide. So where does this leave us with all of the NGOs that invested so heavily in pushing the child sex trafficking stories? Well, they're not pleased. They're not pleased. QAnon and human trafficking conspiracy theories, they're causing more harm than good, apparently. Next slide. And stories are turning up in the New York Times and HuffPost and local newspapers. QAnon followers are hijacking the Save the Children movement. It's out of control how QAnon undermines legitimate anti-trafficking efforts. And what are we talking about when we say legitimate anti-trafficking efforts? We're talking about people who get millions of dollars to go around to local police forces and tell them that if a woman has a man's name tattooed on her, it means she's owned by a pimp. I hate to be the person who says, I told you so, but next slide, please. Actually, I don't hate to be the person who says, I told you so. They never thought the leopards would eat their face. And finally, uh, the next slide, please. Anyone who resisted this narrative has found it a mostly thankless proposition. Laura Augustine, 2007, Sex at the Margins. This really is, if you read nothing else, read this book next. Maggie McNeil, who's been blogging since 2010 as the honest courtesan, she's the librarian of sex work research uh, for, against, it's all on her site. Myself, 2012, with the sex myth, uh, which attracted a lot of nuisance libel suits. It's not the reason I live in the United States now, but it's a reason I live in the United States now. So finally, next slide, please. What happens from here? Um, Maggie McNeil predicts there's going to be an implosion. This all has been too big to last and the funding has moved elsewhere. We can take away some lessons from the satanic panic. No one's going to be held directly responsible for misinformation, um, even after the sort of underlying tenets have largely been rejected. Laws will remain on the books. They'll continue to harm people, even if they're used less regularly. Conspiracy theories naturally belong to neither the right nor 
the left. Um, there's as many that appeal to all political bends, anti-vaccinations, anti-GMOs, but they are readily adopted by authoritarians of any stripe. Next slide, please. What can be done about it? The thing I always say, listen to sex workers. Um, also as well, listen to trans people. They've been raising the same concerns for decades as well. And pay attention to where children are really disappearing at the U.S.-Mexico border, in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. And finally, the last slide, please. A lot of people have said to me, doesn't this make you a conspiracy theorist? <laughs> it's like, I kind of felt that way when I was writing The Sex Myth. But I think in the end, I agree with Alan Moore. The main thing I learned about conspiracy theory is that conspiracy theorists believe in the conspiracy because it's more comforting. The truth is that the world is actually chaotic. The truth is not the Illuminati or the Jewish banking conspiracy or the gray alien theory. The truth is far more frightening. Nobody is in control. The world is rudderless. And that's all I've got. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to now spend uh, about 40 minutes asking uh, some of the questions you've asked. We've had some really interesting questions, a lot of enthusiasm for pets, which I very much appreciate. Very good. Um, <laughs> we got a mix of the lighthearted and the more serious, Brooke, so that, that should be good for you. Um, so the first question is a bit more of a serious one, and it, there's actually kind of two linked questions here. So it's, what are your thoughts on the legalization of sex work and a kind of related question about, are there examples of legislation or laws worldwide, example, the Netherlands, that resulted in actual reduction in sex trafficking and improved the lives of sex workers? Those are both really good questions. And uh, and as you say, they're related because it, it touches on um, the fact that there have been attempts over the years and in lots of countries uh, to try to control or regulate sex work in some way. So as the second question brings up uh, in the Netherlands, uh, you have a type of legalization where if you are um, working in a, a licensed brothel or if you are working in one of the windows, the cameras and the red light districts, that's a legal form of sex work. So you have to uh, register, and there's a lot of rules around that. Uh, the flip side with that in the Netherlands, however, is that if you are engaging in other kinds of sex work, that's illegal. And so if you were working like the way that I worked in London as an independent escort, that would be illegal. There's actually a friend of mine in the Netherlands um, who was, uh, her professional name was Conchita van der Waal, and uh, a few years ago, there was an enormous scandal um, because she was outed as being a, uh, a very high level banker who had worked for the Dutch National Bank, who was also an escort on the side. And the thing about that is because she was working as an escort or uh, going with her clients to sex clubs and things like that, she was working illegally. Uh, this was actually followed up by uh, years of very vicious investigations. So when people talk about the Netherlands, they think that because the cameras are legal, because the brothels are legal, everything's fine as a sex worker. Now, why does this cause problems? You know, if somebody wants to work as a sex worker, why don't they just sign up and work in the cameras? What's wrong with that? 
And the problem with that really is that because for a number of people who enter sex work, it's a job of last resort. They're doing it because they they need the money right then, right there. They might be a little bit too chaotic um, to work in the cameras. Also, there are concerns about uh, the amount of regulation, whether the regulation actually does keep them safer. Um, so it's very much a mixed bag in the Netherlands. And uh, that's a place, as I say, I have a lot of friends there who are sex workers and spent a lot of time. Um, you know, it has this reputation of being a, a very tolerant, freewheeling kind of place. But underneath it all is a very deep social conservatism. Now, that's an example of what we would call a legalization of sex work. Um, and that's distinct from decriminalization. Decriminalization, which is preferred by, uh, by sex workers and by the organizations that represent them, um, would be making it legal to engage in sex work in your own home, would be making it legal to be an independent escort. Um, you, you don't have to register and, and put your name saying, I am now on the official hooker list. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people who uh, have to put their names on lists for the work in, in some states in the United States, for example, if, if you're a stripper, you have to be registered with your state with your legal name. Now, if you are in an industry where somebody might become obsessed with you and start stalking you, it does it does leave you open to harassment. It leaves you open to harassment, not just from clients, but also from law enforcement. There's a lot of sex workers who feel that uh, their safety interests are better served by decriminalization as opposed to legalization. So in terms of countries where uh, decriminalization has been tried or places where it's been tried, um, uh, New South Wales and Australia, um, more famously, uh, New Zealand uh, has a type of decriminalization. There are some limits on that. Um, my understanding is, at least in the past, uh, they have not permitted non-citizens to engage in decriminalized sex work. However, the data that comes out of New Zealand is extremely positive, not just in terms of overall well-being, um, sex workers having better access to any services they might need that are provided by the government, um, feeling safer because they can go to law enforcement. Where this gets criticized and, and why when we talk about legalization and decriminalization of sex work, the people who are against that keep throwing out New Zealand and saying, oh, but we, count, we can't count them because it's an island. It's a small country and it's an island. Well, guess where else is, is a small country? Guess where else is an island? You know, yeah. Ireland, the UK, I don't yeah. know. It, <laughs> I mean, they're far so, away from everything, I guess, if you want to. They're so far away. Far it's away. not like we're on planes now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's interesting. I mean, there's. it seems to me that there's some analogous situations there with, with the drug, like decriminalization and legalization of drugs. And do they then, yeah. if it is legalized, are they kind of taking a cut or are you paying fees to register? Is that another yeah, you pay of it? to register. You have to do it regularly over and over again. Um, it is unfortunately a, a way that puts more power into the hands of the bosses. The people who today we would deride as pimps. 
Yeah. It, it makes them into legal bosses. It gives them a cut. It legitimizes them, but it doesn't necessarily lessen any of the stigma against the sex workers themselves. Yeah, I mean, that kind of links into the next question. The next question is about, you know, what, in your opinion, is the best way for just us regular people to help destigmatize sex work? Um, probably, you know, on an individual level, um, just supporting and, and boosting the voices of sex workers themselves. I mean, I'm in a position where I was a sex worker, but I have now been retired for such a long time um, that a lot of the activism um, among sex workers has has really continued on. It's really evolved. I do feel uncomfortable sometimes being seen as the voice for sex workers. And this was something that I brought up when I talked to Parliament of like, you've called me in here because I'm famous and you want to make an example of me. You're not calling in sex workers who are working right now. It's like of, of all the people that they spoke to at that time, only one of them, Laura Lee from Glasgow, was an actual working sex worker at that time. Um, so really boosting the voices of people who are still doing sex work right now. If I woke up tomorrow and the currently working sex workers of the world all decided they wanted the Swedish model, whether I personally agreed with it or not, I would I would have to step back and say, well, these are the stakeholders. These are the people who should have the biggest voice. These are the people who should be at the table rather than me when it comes to actually making the laws that affect them. Yeah. And I mean, if they're the ones that are working right now, then it normalizes it in that it's like, it's not just famous people. They're like just normal people right. that you might know, you might not know that they are sex workers. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think a lot of people forget that when I was working as an escort, I worked for an agency. Stuff was online, but it uh, the whole kind of phenomenon of independent online sex workers, it wasn't even a thing then. And I retired before that happened. Things yeah. have changed so much. Yeah, massively. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you mentioned the Swedish model there again. Um, can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about um, what the Swedish model is? Okay, so um, this was a suite of laws that was brought in and basically... It claimed to decriminalize women. Basically, it was saying um, women who are engaged in sex work cannot be arrested for being sex workers. We're only going to arrest their clients, um, which on the face of it, you might think, well, that sounds great because it'll discourage sex work. This does cause a problem because if you are somebody who relies on sex work for a living, you really don't want your clients to go away. Yeah. Um, but also... As well, you don't want your clients to uh, be afraid whenever they're talking to you that you might be a cop who's out to get them. There's a really um, tragic story, actually, of a sex worker in Sweden, uh, and she uh, was working professionally under the name Petite Jasmine. And uh, she was married and had two children. Uh, she and her husband divorced. She started in sex work. Um, and even though the cause of the divorce was domestic violence, um, when it came time to uh, assign visitation and who would have custody of the children, because she was a sex worker, um, full custody was awarded to her husband. Her children were taken away from her. And I mean full custody. She was not even allowed visitation. Oh this went on for years. She was finally allowed a state-supervised visitation with her two kids. At that state-supervised visitation, her ex-husband stabbed her in front of the children, 
uh, in front of the people who were supervising this meeting, and she died. She had been considered, and she had been saying for years, he's like this, this is what's going to happen, you have to protect me, he will kill me. He literally did it. But because she was a sex worker and, and basically refused to denounce that, by the state, she was considered more dangerous to her children than the man who literally killed her. I, that I mean, that's classic. You know as well as I do that. Uh, I mean, I, I know we're not talking about America, but America has this thing that like sex is worse than violence, yes. and that's like yes. a living example of sex is worse than violence to us. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And there are uh, a lot of sort of similar, but not quite as tragic as that one. But a lot of cases where sex workers have been outed. Uh, by an ex-husband who is trying to get custody of the children over and over again. It's happened in loads of places, loads of places in the States. Uh, uh, Palette cleanser here. Can we see your dog? Uh, I can see just a corner of a black, black dog behind you. <laughs> I got to try to move the iPad. It's actually two dogs and they're oh. being so oh. good. I am so proud of them. So... Do, 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 do. Let's see no. if we can see. Oh, that's the Rottweiler oh. girl. She's such no. a good girl. Oh. <laughs> She's so good. And then that is, that is great. Absolutely great. The, the cat Stanley, is, uh, the Hello. Oh. He's a good boy. Oh. That's the best. Face. That is a beautiful face. Lovely. <laughs> there's plenty to cat there. <laughs> now um, that I've awakened okay. the beasts, I don't know if they're going to be as well behaved, but we'll see. Yeah, you know. That was very cute, though. Um, okay, so they are um, they are both rescue dogs. And, oh, good. Um, yes, very good. Definitely support rescue. Yeah, no, we're we're very big on rescue here. Um, they both came to us with fairly significant behavioral issues. And uh, I basically live in the middle of nowhere with quite a lot of land. And it's been awesome because we've been able to uh, adopt dogs with the kind of issues that would make them unadoptable in a city. Even yeah. if you had a small yard, it just wouldn't be enough for dogs with these kind of issues. But they have really turned around. I am so proud of them. Oh, <laughs> that's great! I love I love a good uh, turnaround rescue story. They're good, yeah. good stuff. Um, okay, so back on to the serious questions here. Um, do you think the, who doesn't want to save, this idea that who doesn't want to save children? Is that idea the reason that QAnon have shifted to hashtags about saving children um, rather than nuts conspiracy theories? I'm sure you've seen all the Save the Children uh, rallies. I, I get it mixed up, but you know, there's Save the Children and Save Our Children. One's the legitimate charity. One is the crazy yeah. whack job. Um, do you think that that's kind of the reason they've switched? Who can yeah, be against Yeah, and as you point out, the hashtags are so similar that people are naturally going to confuse them. That's not an accident. That's yeah. not an accident. They know that, you know, at some point they will have exhausted all of the people who are going to believe in the lizard-faced elite eating children. <laughs> and... Uh, Sorry, do Oh no, she's on the sofa. Sorry, <laughs> just like dog noise. I had to see what was going on. Um, 
at, at some point they will exhaust the extremists. And if they want to keep going as a movement, they, they have to continue to expand out to the mainstream and definitely encouraging the confusion between, okay, this one's a charity and this one's QAnon. Yeah, that's not accidental at all. Even though their origin is is with uh, child sex trafficking, um, you know, conspiracies, it's of such an extreme type that that's only going to work for so long. And there's a lot of people who have theorized about, you know, where does QAnon go from here? Like if Donald Trump loses, where does QAnon go? It, it, it does have so many of the features of a religion there are a lot of people who just think QAnon's actually here to stay, whether we like it or not. And certainly um, a lot of the things that have that have come out, you know, a lot of people uh, falling out with their own families because of these conspiracy theories. Uh, a lot of people um, just just turning towards more and more uh, extreme corners of the Internet as a result of this and as a result of the isolation from the mainstream. Uh, it, it could keep going for a generation. Stanley, please, please don't eat the printer. This is part of the reason I think a lot more people are becoming aware of it, though, is that this has reached a new demographic. It's the, especially that young mom demographic yeah. um, is really, you know, grabbed onto that. And, um, you know, it's a very wise strategy. As you say, it's certainly not an accident accident. But I also um, think this is well. I I just want to add um, that I also think yeah. this is where skeptics have a fairly uh, important role because what else kind of followed those sort of demographics is uh, anti-vaccination um, yeah. Yeah. conspiracy theories. And if you look at, for example, in Australia, what Australian skeptics were able to do in terms of countering the anti-vaccination messages that uh, media were allowing to go out unchecked, you know, that was a um, that was a huge win. So I do think that skeptics have a role in challenging this sort of stuff and not necessarily challenging the people who are putting that false information forward but challenging the media who are just letting it go out there with the myth that there's two sides to every story. So we need to hear from these wackos right now. Yeah. 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 And it's, a, it's, they, it was similar in Australia, wasn't it? With the Australian vaccination network, very generic mm -hmm. name, you know, who wouldn't right? support the Australian vaccination network seems legit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very similar sort of thing. Um, so uh, can people who don't pay for sex do anything meaningful to prevent or combat sex trafficking? So seeking ethical porn, general vigilance in their communities, et cetera, anything that you think they might be able to do? Yeah, general vigilance is really a big one. Um, in terms of consumption of porn, I mean, really, I feel kind of encouraged by the uh, by the explosion popularity of things like OnlyFans, yeah, you know, because you you're not just you're not just looking at a tube site that has ripped off material from who knows where, produced by who knows who, in who knows what kind of situation. You you actually see the people, and you give your money directly to them. I. You know, if we're talking about the bad side of social media, we've also got to talk about the things that have been great. And uh, and 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 as well, when you see, I mean, 
as much as, say, Bella Thorne's involvement with OnlyFans or, um, oh, who's the other one who doesn't actually show you her nipples? Uh, Belle Delphine. Okay. You know, people like that being on OnlyFans. Um, it, it just sort of brings uh, a more mainstream eye to um, destigmatizing sex work. And in spite of the fact that they've done things that are questionable and can harm sex workers, I think that it at least demonstrates that people who would consider themselves part of legit media are starting to see that, hey, maybe sex work's all right. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, so the next question is, oh wait, that's a repeat of that question. Um, oh. In the Spaghetti Arrows diagram, did it mention Gamergate? I was always sure they had a big part to do with Pizzagate, enthused by their er earlier success. Yeah, so in, in, that, in that slide on the left one, the left-hand one, which just looks like a small plate of spaghetti, it doesn't mention Gamergate, but I think uh, that is absolutely correct to identify Gamergate as also being part of this phenomenon. While Gamergate itself uh, targeted, targeted a fairly specific demographic um, that Pizzagate kind of went beyond and definitely QAnon has gone far beyond, uh, the failure of social media platforms to really get a handle on how the platforms were being abused in order to push these conspiracy theories and harm people um, was really indicative of what was going to be going on later on with QAnon. And uh, people have pointed this out, though, but even before Gamergate, um, we had things like your slip is showing and other ways in, in which, um, you know, various things that had grown out of uh, 4chan and kind of related networks uh, had been used to coordinate harassment against people. So this is very definitely in that family of things. There's a lot of overlap between the individuals as well. When you look at the people on the right uh, who are now, if not openly espousing QAnon, at least flirting with QAnon for clicks and follows, uh, and you, you dial back to when did they get started, when did they first join Twitter, you know, when did they first set up their YouTube channel? Yeah, Gamergate is deep in there for sure. It's using the same approach over and over again. And this is why when you see things like Twitter saying, oh, they're going to they're going to stamp down on this stuff starting from next week. It's like it's too little too late, guys. Or when Twitter came out and said we're banning accounts that that wish death on uh, Donald Trump when when he was first diagnosed with COVID. And it's like people have been sending death threats on Twitter pretty much ever since Twitter got popular. And now they're choosing to do something about it. You know, go back to the trans people on Twitter, the black yeah. women on Twitter who have been saying even before Gamergate, this is a problem. And uh, and they've actively done nothing about it. Yeah, I mean, we even run into minor problems promoting this talk and getting, uh, getting <laughs> just using the word QAnon. And it's like, OK, so now you're going to be vigilant about this. But um, maybe <laughs> <substance>. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and, and again, there's a lot of unintended consequences that when they finally do get around to saying, oh, we're going to do something about this. Um, a lot of times, as often as not, they end up attacking the people who are the victims of these campaigns as much as they're doing anything about the campaigns themselves. Yeah. And it becomes harder to do 
when we get to QAnon and we've got people at high levels of government and high levels of the military who are pushing these conspiracy theories, now it's got to the point where it's almost impossible to ban those accounts. Yeah. Who's going to ban the president of the United States? I mean, if you were following the community guidelines, it seems like you should. (laughs) (laughs) Community guidelines, though. I mean, we've all been at conferences where we've all got to sign the community guidelines, but we all know what's really happening, I'm afraid to say. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, That kind of links to the next question, which is, is it possible for YouTube, Facebook, etc. to properly stop conspiracy promoting or are the effects of that too opposed from their commercial interests? That is a great question. I mean, my personal feel is that it's they can only go so far without really damaging themselves in the market. Um, and, and I did think that, although it was fairly simplistic, I did think um, that that documentary, uh, The Social Dilemma, did at least raise that question really, really well, getting people to understand it's like, I know it is an old saw by now, and we can argue about how accurate it actually is. But if something is free, you're the product. Um, that's yeah. what they're all raising their money on, you know. Uh, for uh, you know, this is this is going kind of uh, deep into my own history here. I look at things like Slack, and it's like I remember when Cal Henderson was just some schlub in a in a pub in. Uh, at a blog meet back in 2000. Um, And now that's being traded for billions. Um, Everybody's using it. And it's like, how much is being collected about you? How much is being sold? And how much of that are you comfortable with? Um, It's it's really difficult because especially now with, um, you know, various lockdowns, distancing, work from home, we live in a world where we can't really exist without this stuff in any sort of functional way. We still have to go to work. We still have to make money. We still have to put food on the table. Those of us who are lucky enough not to have been fired from our jobs in the first wave of COVID, you know, so it's 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 really um, more pressure does need to be on the companies themselves. But at the end of the day, they're also looking after their bottom lines. It's it's tied up in so much of what it means to be a participant in this economy um, that going forward, it's probably only ever going to be decided case by case. Yeah. Well, um, slightly depressing, but I think you're probably... Like Matthew McConaughey and True Detective, but like with cute earrings, you know? <laughs> um, so can you go, I don't actually know about this question. Can you go into more detail about the claims of sex trafficking around the Super Bowl? What was the claim? Yeah, I don't I don't know much about that either. Right. So basically, um, for those of you who are not so familiar with American football, this is the championship for American football uh, that happens annually. And it's in a different city each year. Um, So they choose that in advance. And every year in kind of the run up to the Super Bowl for the last sort of 10 years or so, uh, scare articles would come out saying there's going to be a spike in human sex trafficking. I say human sex trafficking as opposed to, I don't know, llama sex trafficking. But anyway, there's (laughs) going to be a spike in sex trafficking. You never know. um, In in our city around the time of the Super Bowl and and all of these panic things. 
you know, um, because all of these people will be coming from out of town to watch the football and they'll be uh, really wanting to traffic some children afterwards or whatever it is. Um, so the articles would start to appear in papers um, and and it really gets to the extent of hotels putting little slips of paper around their soap saying, if you're reading this and you've been sex trafficked, call the front desk. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to work. <laughs> the interesting thing about it is um, that sex workers in the last few years have started to put up their hands and say, not only is this a myth because of quite a lot of the uh, inflation of the dangers of, of sex trafficking, um, they're also saying, actually, the Super Bowl is bad for business. And the reason why is because the hotels all get booked up so quickly that their regular clients can't book them. <laughs> it actually yeah, turns yeah. out to be bad for buying <laughs> sex. Makes sense, really, right. when you think about it. Yeah, and also, <laughs> I mean, American football is like in terms of length, um, it's about four to five hours long to watch one match, you know, plus all of your tailgating, your pre-gaming and all of this stuff. If anybody can perform, if any man can perform sexually after going to the Super Bowl, mm. uh, my hat is well and truly yeah. off, sir. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot of food and booze. In, uh, a yeah. lot. <laughs> a lot of American food and booze. Very yeah. bloating. Very bloating. Heavy food. <laughs> um, the next question is an acronym question. What is SESTA or FOSTA? So S-E-S-T-A and F-O-S-T-A. Okay. Yeah, so this is the Stop of Online Sex Trafficking Act. Um, okay. It had a different name when it went through the Senate as when it went through the House of Representatives. But basically, these were bills presented to Congress a few years ago. And this was kind of following up on the raids on Backpage, which had been encouraged by people like Ashton Kutcher and things like that. All of the claims saying uh, there's trafficking going on in uh, small local newspapers. And, and really, it was just the personal ads that uh, sex workers have often used to their own benefit. Um, where this all got expanded was people realized that sex workers were using um, various websites online to advertise their services. So we have things like review sites uh, and things like that, where people will put an ad up, they'll talk to potential clients. And the claim was made that this these were active places where sex trafficking was going on. Mm. Um now, the problem with shutting these places down is that uh, online, obviously, is a much safer place to try to vet people than in person. You yeah. know, so it is opening it is opening sex workers up to meeting people in person that they perhaps would have vetted as a potential danger uh, earlier on in the transaction. It also prevents sex workers from talking to each other. Now, one of the biggest things, because sex workers don't always feel comfortable going to law enforcement, is they share information with each other about bad dates. Um, in the UK, there's uh, a program called National Ugly Mugs. Um, and this is where sex workers can report, like, there was this guy, this is what he called himself, this was what he looked like, this is his phone number, he tried to beat me up, or he tried to rape me, or he tried to steal my money. Um, that kind of internal sharing information uh, is is really actually essential for sex workers' safety. You know, yeah. when you feel like you can't go to the cops, because uh, the unfortunate truth in the United States, certainly, 
is that um, the police are as or more likely to assault sex workers than their clients are. It's kind of a, a horrible statistic. Um, so if you feel you can't go to them, you want to go to your peers. If you can't openly share information with them, that puts other people in danger. So by closing down these spaces where sex workers communicated, not only with potential clients, uh, but also with each other, it's actually uh, made things a bit more dangerous for people operating online. And yeah, and part of this might be that, as you said, we still have this vision that sex workers are people walking around in the streets, hanging out in groups, all chatting with each other, when really they're chatting with each other online. Most of them aren't out on the streets. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> and, and, uh, and as well, you know, a lot of the people who get identified online are people who are actively going out to hurt sex workers and traveling from city to city yeah. to do so. And um, but yeah, and and we kind of assume, oh, well, if you're going to have sex for money, um, what does it matter? You've already made the decision to put yourself in danger. People say that and they don't realize the extent to which not only sex workers on the street do actually uh, share protection. I mean, that's why pimps exist. If you can't get the police to protect you, what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, but also, as well, the extent to which, you know, people are just in danger in public in general. I think about times when I wasn't a sex worker, some guys that I went home with, I think I vetted people who paid for it much better than I ever mm-hmm. anybody who mm-hmm. got it for free. <laughs> Definitely. I think a lot of people can agree with that. <laughs> um, so uh, there was one question actually that I, I got mixed up on before. So be- he, they, he asked two questions. Matt Reynolds asked two questions about. We asked the one earlier about what do people who do not pay for sex work? How can they take meaning, meaningful steps? But he also asked can people who do sex take meaningful steps to prevent or combat sex trafficking, and how are they? How might they be different in regulated sex work countries? You know, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, beg on that one simply because it has been such a long time since I worked in sex work personally. Um, however, that is definitely a question I will put out to uh, sex workers I follow on Twitter and see if any of them want to discuss that. I know that's definitely something Maggie McNeil has written about on her blog, because uh, she's got this feature, Ask Maggie, and that's the kind of question that comes up there. Um, but I feel that some of the knowledge around that is something that might be so specific to certain places or certain times that I don't think I could adequately answer that one. Yeah, so maybe follow Brooke on Twitter and see if she, she you, you can find any um, interesting follow-up to that one and maybe yeah. do a bit of there. Um, and perhaps feel free, if, if anyone doesn't get their questions answered here, ask me questions on Twitter um, with the caveat of I often can't see things people ask me on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that particular Art. question I'll put out there and see if anyone else feels prepared to answer it. Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, one of the questions was, grooming is a much larger problem than trafficking. It's traffic panic promoted by folk who want the media gays to be dragged away from things like priests, coaches, etc. I mean, you even mentioned that Ooh. family is a big one, so... Yeah. Yeah. That's, that <laughs> is a great, 
That is a great question. I love that because, yeah, so much of the focus, I'm not sure if it's that people are doing that on purpose, um, but it certainly, um, yeah, in terms of consequences, it definitely drags attention away from those kind of issues in grooming. And particularly when we're talking about churches and families and coaches and things like that. What's amazing to me is there have been absolutely enormous scandals. Uh, obviously, everybody's familiar with the Catholic Church, but also in the United States with uh, coaching. So we have um, like U.S. women's gymnastics. Uh, there have been various university teams, um, you know, and there have been these enormous scandals where we can identify dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of victims. And for some reason, when we talk about trafficking we don't talk about those as if yeah. that was something else that happened you know and it gets compartmentalized and put away um and and i feel partly because there's actually more money in imaginary trafficking yeah. in terms of if you're trying to prevent it than in preventing real trafficking if you're preventing real trafficking it's actually quite expensive to save somebody mm -hmm. <laughs> you know getting them out of whatever situation that they happen to be in putting them into uh any kind of meaningful help that they need. Nobody actually wants to do that. Everybody wants to do the fun stuff, give the fun presentations, ride around with the cops and feel important. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been extremely disappointing that we we do have uh, these examples of, of really uh, extreme and unchecked grooming scandals that uh, people do not see as being part of this story. Yeah, they're definitely not shouted about. And uh, I don't think I've heard anyone say that uh, Trump is saving us from the Catholic Church pre priests. And they're certainly not going to say it now with his current Supreme Court nominee. You know, I mean, why would you foreground that when you have somebody who is a very conservative Catholic yeah. Um, currently being grilled by Congress. And, and, and of course, they've got the, the, the Republicans have the votes to uh, to uh, confirm her. So she will almost certainly be confirmed. But they're not going to foreground that. Absolutely. If anything, they're going to turn around and attack anybody who questions what role her faith might have in her judgments. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, this has been really, really interesting. Um, there are, of course, a million questions we could ask, but I'm going to wrap it up there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, Follow at SITP on Twitter or head to our website at SITP.online where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>